0: tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and happy to bring you another episode. And while we are still officially under lockdown, no live tennis, uh, Mike, we've been thankful to get a lot of great guests, and I know you had a chance uh, this week to speak with a fellow American tennis player.
1: Yeah, we've had some interesting ones lately and uh, outside of Canada guests, haven't we, between uh, Renee Stubbs, who you spoke with a couple of weeks ago and then Craig Shapiro from the States. And uh, the U.S. theme continued this week as we had uh, Ashley Harkle Road, who joined me for a chat about her short but eventful professional career. And uh, again, great to talk to a former pro and get their insight on the game. And her story was really an interesting one because she found success so early making it into the top 40 by the age of 18 and then uh, never quite recaptured and, and got back to that stage again. Uh, also decided to uh, to start a family at quite a young age and and by the time she was 25 everything had wrapped up for for Ashley and she was already transitioning into uh, motherhood full time and and doing some work for the tennis channel commentating so it was just interesting to hear her career arc uh as short as it was and uh, get her take on uh, on the memorable moments the ups and downs the challenges of what it's like on the pro tour and uh, as you'll hear here she uh, she didn't hold back and it was a real uh, honest look at uh, what that life is like. Okay, this week, I'm really happy to welcome to our podcast, former American tennis player, former Fed Cup member of Team USA, uh, top uh, 40 presence on the WTA Tour at the age of 18, and then retired from professional competition by the age of 25. So we'll talk about all of that and a lot more this week with our guest, Ashley Road. Thank you, Ashley, so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, I'm excited.
1: We got to start with uh, COVID-19 and the isolation everyone's going through. And I've got to say, I'm kind of jealous of the setup that you guys have in your home because you're making it look like a lot more fun than I think it is for for many of us. But uh, how are you guys doing through uh, 10 or 11 weeks of this right now, where you're set up in California?
2: Um, We are very lucky because you know, thankfully we can swim, Um, and we can, we have a little, you know, basketball hoop in the front, you know, front part of our house. So, and we are riding our bikes a lot. We bought four brand new mountain bikes. Um, and at the beginning of this, my daughter couldn't even ride a bike and now she's mountain biking everywhere. So we have definitely been staying active and, um, you know, thankfully we live in Southern California, which the weather's for the most part, pretty amazing every day. Um, so we've definitely been staying active and you know, we've just learning new things. I mean, I've never cooked so much. I've never baked so much. I've never ate so much,
1: <laughs> You and me both. but,
2: um, but I'm also, we're also staying active. So that's, I think that's the good part. Um, the only kind of, uh, frustrating for me as a mom is, you know, my kids are home every day and there's no school and it's not looking like there's going to be school until 2021, quite honestly. right. So, um, I mean, we're in a good routine right now. I I'm pretty um, excited for like summer to start, I guess, in terms of like them not having to wake up and be on a zoom schedule all the time, me having to keep up with all the zooms with their teachers and classmates and art class and music and all that, that's a little, you know, that, that can be a little overwhelming. Um, but for the most part, I mean, we're doing pretty well, you know, I mean, I think the most important thing is we're staying healthy.
1: Yeah. First and <laughs> foremost, I, I can relate to you on a lot of what you said because I'm home with my three kids and uh, the zoom chats and the schoolwork and trying to get a routine with them as well. And and for us, at least up here in Canada, the weather's just started getting better the last two weeks. In fact, Oddly enough, about two and a half weeks ago, we had like a snowstorm here in Toronto, like a freak snowstorm in May. Oh, wow. Very random for us, but uh, uh-huh. definitely, definitely better now. And I got to remember as to get on the sunscreen, because as I'm looking at myself here on the screen, I can see the <laughs> last couple of days. Um, prior to all of this, maybe you can fill us in a little bit and our listeners who aren't as familiar with what you've been doing since retirement, but what's been keeping you busy since you left professional tennis about 10 years ago?
2: Um, Well, at the beginning, when I kind of first uh, left the game, I was still sort of in the game. I was doing some commentating, um, and I was doing playing some exos around the world. Um, I was playing exos with Hingis and Kornikova, um, and we would go to Bogota, Colombia. We would go to Costa Rica. We went to Venezuela, of all places so it was it was i was be, i was basically playing on um an exos with uh the jim courier i guess it's called the champions tour right. i don't know if he's changed the name now but um that was keeping me busy for a few years we would even go to the cayman islands um and then that kind of dwindled my kids got older which meant i was needed even more i guess Um, And then my kids started getting into, you know, organized sports and basically I then had no time anywhere in my life for another life outside of my kids because they just keep me busy. I mean, my daughter was playing tennis tournaments on the weekend. My son's playing state cup, soccer, you know, basketball tournaments at the Mamba Center here in, in Los Angeles. So, you know, barely any time to sit down. Quite honestly, um, but still still kind of in the game, still playing a little tennis, just you know definitely not not like I was right after I left the tour
1: yeah do you do you follow professional tennis much these days? Do you watch any women's or men's matches when professional tennis is is happening, or have you kind of moved on and and sounds like you're really busy with other things, so totally understandable if you don't get the
2: <laughs> you know, there was a moment, I think about three years ago where um, I wasn't watching any tennis at all. Um, but every time I would watch it, it would be like, oh my God, these girls that I, were, that I was playing against back in the day are still playing.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> and I would be so shocked. Um, but now it seems like we've made that turnover and there's like a lot of new players um, in the picture. So I, I have to say, I keep up with tennis around the quarters or semifinals of Grand Slams. I don't keep up with any of the, you know, um side tournaments, the tournaments in between the Grand Slams. I used to. I used to, you know, get up and and, you know, get the paper USA Today and turn it to the back of the, you know, like sports results section and I'd look at all the scores and all that. But certainly my certainly my life has changed um since then. And um so yeah, I mean I'm just I'm just kind of a busy sport
1: mom I'm becoming a busy sport dad and it's, uh, it's only gonna get busier for me I think as my kids grow up but uh,
2: it does it does you, you enjoy yeah. that
1: right like it's funny I never thought I would have enjoyed putting my own interests and activities aside as much as I do now I would way rather yeah. watch my son play hockey or my kids play soccer or whatever the sport might be than, than heading out and doing it myself actually
2: I know. I remember like traveling around the world and I'd sit next to someone on the airplane and they'd be like, oh, I have two kids. Let me show you a picture of my kids. And I'd just be like, okay.
3: And <laughs> oh, now,
2: right. and now I'm that person. I'm like, oh, I've got two kids. Let me just, let me just show you how she hits the tennis ball. Just hold on one second. here.
3: <laughs> Same here. So I've become
2: that mom, you know, um, um, but they are in my life. And I always felt like I would be a young mom. I always wanted to be a young mom. That was something going into the whole, uh, you know, tennis lifestyle um, and and having that, that life on tour, which is basically traveling 27, between 27 and 32 weeks a year. I always knew one day when this is over, I'm going to settle down. I'm going to have a family and I'm not going to travel as much, you know, and I would always kind of look forward to that.
1: Is that, is that what you miss the least then is, is the travel and the hectic schedule that goes along with it?
2: That is absolutely what I miss the least. Yeah. I, I really, first of all, I get very, very anxious on airplanes. I, I passed out on a couple of airplanes because of turbulence one time. If you ask my husband now, even when we do travel and we don't travel that often, but when we do and there's turbulence I just can't relax at all. Um, so that is that is something that always took a toll on me um, because you know I started I went to Paraguay with the United States Tennis Association, all expenses paid for junior you know for a junior couple junior tennis tournaments um, and I did that at I just turned twelve years old. So I had been doing that for I had been traveling around for a while. And never really enjoyed flying, sadly. If I would have enjoyed flying, the tour would have been no problem for me.
1: Might have kept you around longer, is that right? Huh? Might have kept you around longer? The money? No, if you had been more comfortable with the flying.
2: Oh, if I could have been more comfortable with the flying, I think I just could have um relaxed and, and I I feel like I could have enjoyed it a bit more.
1: Yeah.
0: You
2: know? because um, it was what, just always a lingering stress.
1: What do you miss the most then? Is it the the competition? Is it the camaraderie? Uh, what's the, the biggest thing you miss from being a pro tennis player?
2: Um, you know, I have to say, someone asked me this question. Actually, I had to write an interview earlier today. And um, the biggest thing that I miss is probably the high that you get from a great win or excited about Um, a big tournament coming up. Um, I would say just that sort of initial great high that comes along with success and accomplishing something um, and, you know, having that top 10, top 20 win.
1: You had some big wins during your career. Uh, Names that come to mind are are players like uh, Martin (laughs) Pitoli and uh, Daenerys Safina, Um, Hantikova, I believe, as well, uh, a couple of times. Which moment or win gave you the, the greatest sort of exhilarating feeling, I guess, as you describe it, the, the highest high of your career?
2: Um, like, I played all those girls, I remember. Um, I did, I, I did have some pretty good wins. I, I thoroughly enjoyed defeating Schiavoni, Francesca Schiavoni. Right after she won uh, the French Open, um, I defeated her in Sir Togenbosch. It was on grass, um, which wasn't her best surface, but also wasn't my best surface either. And we had a duel. We had a real, a real great match. Um, and that was kind of fun to defeat her because sometimes I'd have problems with girls with sliced backhands. Um, so that was a great win for me. I remember uh, I always... Will remember um, when I defeated Lissiki, um when I when I played for the U.S. Fed Cup team. Um, I remember I was third on the list to play um, to play on the team, and then Serena dropped out. So then here I was. I popped in as the singles player because I was next in line. Um, so it was Davenport and myself, and um, we played against Germany in San Diego. And it was my very first Fed Cup, and I remember Davenport went out to play this new girl Lisicki, right? And she lost like straight sets, I think. And I was like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> <Now you guys laughs> like I was yourself. expecting you to take us home. Oh. <laughs> like, you're Davenport, you know. And so and then I went out right after she lost to Lisicki, and I I can't remember the girl, I, but the girl I played against. But at the time, Germany didn't have they only had Lasicki and they, and then the next girl in line, I cannot remember her name sadly. Um, but she was ranked, I want to say like 160 in the world. And, um, so I beat her pretty, uh, pretty easily. Like, something like two and three or three and two. And then the next day I had to come out and play Liseki. And I was like, well, if she beat Davenport, then I mean, I'm not going to have a chance with her. And that big serve, right? That
1: huge serve.
2: Right. Big serve, just huge ground strokes. And I remember Zena Garrison was the coach and she was like, look, you can beat this girl. Lindsay played terrible yesterday. I think you can beat this girl. And I was like, I looked at her and I was like, really? And she's like, I wouldn't tell you that if I didn't believe it. So um, I went out and beat her in straight sets. And the one thing that Zena told me was anytime you get a short ball, come to the net because I actually had some really good results in doubles. I think I won a WTA or final at a couple WTA events and then, Quarterfinals of three different grand slams and doubles. Um, and I really didn't take it too seriously, quite honestly. Um, but I was pretty good at it. And, um, and I actually had a lot of fun playing doubles. And I think it always, every time I play doubles, I feel like it always improved my singles game. Um, because I just became more and more comfortable at the net. So I remember when I was playing against Lasicki, Zena Garrison said, anytime you get a short ball, I want you to hit it and come to the net. I do not want to see you hitting it and backing up, hit it, come to the net, follow it in, hit the, you know, drop volley, hit the drop volley. She cannot get up to the drop volleys. And I did it like so many times and I beat her straight sets. And I remember, you know, I had the, the American flag in my hand and I was running around the court. So that was a big high for me. That was a really like big those, high. Like movie movie
1: supposed, moments,
2: right? I was actually supposed to go to um, to Moscow after the Nasdaq, but then I had the my ovary situation, and I, you know, I had to pull out of it sadly. But um, but after that match against Lesiki, um, it was right before Indian Wells in Miami. We played Fed Cup, I guess, right after the Australian Open. And um, I remember after being Lysicki and after kind of having that big confidence boost that, I, that the, you know, the Davis Cup, I mean, that the Fed Cup match gave me, I remember going on to Indian Wells and, you know, beating Safina, beating Safarova. I lost to Rodwanska, like seven, five in the third. I was up four, one in the third, but I was really starting to know my game went on to um, the NASDAQ, beat Rosano, who was really tough to beat. Um, and, you know, so I, I definitely started finding my groove there um, and had some cool had some cool wins, yeah, for sure. But I, I think it was Lisicki and Schiavone. Obviously, the Honchakova win was always great, but, um, you know, I kind of always had Honchakova's number because she – she was a big hitter, big player, but a little inconsistent. And I was more consistent and I could run down all of her balls. So I don't think she really loved playing me. Nor did Safina.
1: I enjoyed going through your uh, WTA page uh, this afternoon, just prepping to speak with you and reminiscing <laughs> and, and sort of reliving a lot of those those big victories you had. I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. been 10 years to me since you've retired. It doesn't seem that long.
2: 2008
1: I know. seemed to be, you know, if we go back, 2008 seemed to be a year that you were. Um, making some steady gains. Your ranking was approaching the, the top 50 or so, I believe. And then 2009, mm-hmm. obviously, um, you know, becoming a mom and, and being pregnant. Uh, and then you mm-hmm. tried to come back or you, you played a few matches in 2010, but I think only three three matches. Uh, and yep. then that was it. So what was it um, when you came back that season that uh, you decided to uh, to call it a career after those few matches?
2: You know, I just felt like, I had been doing it for such a long time, and you know, I when I got pregnant, this was after I, you know, I, I had that accident with my ovary. Um, and the reason why I had that was because I was on birth control, of course. And sometimes it causes birth control can cause like polycystic ovaries, is what they call it, where blood fills in a massive cyst, and it just got really big and. Anyway, after that whole experience, I just said to myself, I'm going to take it easy. I've been doing this since I was 12 years old. I started making money at the sport at 14 years old. I don't even know who I am without the sport. Um, I don't even know what other interests that I like. Um, I've just been groomed to train and, and be this professional tennis player and try and be successful for myself, but also for my family and my agents and my contracts and all that. And I just, I remember when I got pregnant, I was so relaxed and so chill for the most part and just really enjoyed all that time off. I did freeze my ranking because the WTA allows you to freeze your ranking for two years, I think it is, but if you get pregnant, they treat pregnancy like an injury. And, um, when I came back, it just, first of all, my son was a terrible traveler. Um, second of all, On the WTA tour at that time in 2009, honestly, the fad was to have a baby and come back. That was like the new it thing to do.
1: (laughs) Before before Serena did it, it was uh, you made it cool. Was that it?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, Davenport was doing it. Kleisters was doing it. Sybil Bammer had a kid on tour. I mean, the Rinko sisters were now starting to do it. And it was just like, okay, let's have a baby. Let's come back. It's as simple as that. But the only person that could really do it well was Kleister's and Davenport. And the reason why is because they had a full-blown entourage team slash nannies traveling with them. And I didn't take all of that into consideration. Um, so after about three uh, different jolts to Cincinnati, I think we went to, and then we went to Los Gatos and we went somewhere else. It was just, he wasn't sleeping in the middle of the night. We were traveling too much and I just said, you know what, let's call it a day. And thankfully, I guess I could do that because I, at this point now I have, I have other interests outside of tennis and investments and things. So I guess I didn't have to rely fully on, um, you know, getting paid by, the WTA or prize money or whatever it is. Um, Cause that transition can be hard when you are uh, transitioning out of a big sport where, you know, this has been your lifeline for so long. And then now what, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. You know? So. um, It's
1: probably helpful to have a child or two at that point to be able to sort of occupy you and help that transition in some ways.
2: I mean, I always say it's easier for the girls to make the transition than than the men. The men have to like figure out what to do next to support a family. The women can just be like, well, I'm having a baby. <laughs> it's all good. But, um, but yeah, we got, you know, we got into real estate, me and my husband and, and my dad even, and, and um, hard money loans and little things like that. So that keeps, that keeps me busy.
1: What was it like earlier in your career? You achieved your career high ranking of 39 on the WTA at such a young age, you were only 18 years old. What kind of pressure did did that bring with it? Uh, did you think it would be I don't want to say easy, but did you expect that you'd be able to maintain and improve from that uh, steadily from there, or or was it a bit too much for for such a young age to to have that shot up into the top forty of the sports? I mean, looking back,
2: um, looking back, I signed a contract with uh, CAA, and I just turned fifteen, so I signed a contract with at the time they were, uh, the William Morris agency signed with Jill Smoller, who was, um, Serena's agent. And then, um, and it was kind of like, like this child prodigy, I guess I would say. I mean, I was already ranked number one in the nation in the 18s when I was just about to be 15, then went on to be number two in the world juniors, um, you know, finals of the French Open juniors and you know, all that. So the expectations were always really high. Um, and I was kind of supposed to make it big time. (laughs) That's, that's kind of how I always felt. Um, I always felt like I was never doing enough. I was never good enough. Um, I wasn't pleasing the sponsors or the agents or my parents or whatever. It's kind of a sad story in a way. And I don't mean for it to be sad, but it's all worked out great. It's just um, I guess I just put a lot, a lot of pressure on myself because I felt like a lot was expected of me.
1: Feeling that kind of pressure yourself from such a young age and, and being married to a, a former tennis player as well, w- would you and Chuck want your kids to ever follow the route, whether it be tennis or another sport, of of trying to be professional athletes like their parents?
2: Um... I mean, I go back and forth like today, for instance, we were, my daughter and I were at tennis practice and boy, was she hitting the ball well and she's lefty and she's going to be tall. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, she's so good. And then I, again, I, I, people ask me, do you want her to be a professional? And I'm like, honestly, no, I don't. I'm not going to push her in that way because I really feel like the best players, the ones that come out fully, fully on top, really want it for themselves and they don't play for others, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I know that firsthand, you know, because, you know, for me looking back at my career, I feel like I didn't make it really. Um, And I feel like, you know, I I mean, I feel like I did the best I could. And, and um, I didn't, you know, for me, I didn't handle the downs or the, I didn't handle the ups and downs, as well as I feel like I should have. Um, and what I mean by that is, I feel like the great, great players handle the ups and downs the same. They're just even kill. They're just even. They don't get too high on, with a hot with a great win and they don't get too low with a bad loss. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was my problem. I, I really struggled with the highs. Um, so, you know, Would I want my kids to go, you know, would I want my kids to travel around the world and live that lifestyle Only if they want to.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well well
2: said.
1: It's funny as you're saying that and talking about highs and lows. Here I am never coming close to being professional at anything. And just thinking of my day-to-day parenting. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I feel right now is the highs and the lows. And just trying to find that middle ground day-to-day Yeah, just a a lesson in life even.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell my daughter that too, like, Try not to be so emotional over everything. Like um, um, sometimes when you show your emotions, it shows weakness. But I want her to be outgoing and tell me how she feels. But there's just that fine line where sometimes when you're a professional athlete, you really also have to be such a great actress or actor and not show your true feelings outside, you know?
1: It's funny you should say that because I wanted to ask you, and this is a perfect segue, about the time that you did show some emotion on the court when you flipped off the uh, photographer at Wimbledon oh, I- <laughs> who was getting kind of fresh with you courtside as he was snapping pictures. And I'm just wondering, you know, today it seems like so many athletes are trying to hold back the emotion um, and mm-hmm. just keep things so, so much in check to the point where I think tennis fans would love to see a little bit more personality and, and whatnot. Um, what was mm-hmm. your take on on that and and how did you balance that while you were playing Obviously, a moment like that is sort of a um, one that stands out and, and is an irregular thing. But
2: uh, yeah, well, that, that was really that was really a very just quick moment. Um, you know, uh, th- that in particular, because the UK press can be so uh, you know they can just be a little crude, I guess, at times, and they were back then, especially with the girls that morning. I had I woke up to my booty on the front cover of the sports magazine and look I would have been okay with that I'm not modest look that's but it wasn't a good picture
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was it your looked, looked like
2: cellulite it didn't look good and I was really upset about that um so that was then leading me on and then later that day of course I had to play Sharapova um so I'm already feeling like a little embarrassed at the time because I was super young. Um, so yeah, I just, I just looked at him and, and he said something inappropriate and I just looked at him and I just flipped him off. And, you know, that wasn't really my personality. My personality was pretty shy and reserved over the years, you know, the, the y- my younger years of my life, especially in school, the teachers would say she never gets in trouble. She never talks in class. Um so me really coming out of my shell that was probably an important moment there where I was just like flipped him off and then I just kind of started to build this shield uh, you know around me um you know this armor I guess if you will um and I just started you know I built this sort of tough girl mentality over the years and and also just This, um, you know, free spirit, uh, you know, I'm confident with my body, with who I am. I just sort of like started to build confidence, I guess, as a whole, if you will. But definitely coming out and being strong and really like using my voice or, or, or my emotions, it won me a lot of matches, you know, even against Skiavone, like you know, in Sir Togenbosch, I remember her and I were having a battle. Deuce. I remember like like five all deuce. I won that point and screamed out like, come on. And like, you know, that can be intimidating when you, when you really buck up. So, you know, the tour will do that. It'll It'll build strength in a girl. So when I flipped that guy off, it was at the very beginning of my career. Um, and that was just the start of me building this 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 strength and this this uh brave you know armor that I had, I guess around me there towards the end.
1: As you look back at some of your career memories, I'm wondering, because we're a Canadian uh, podcast. Do you have uh-huh. any good memories or stories or anything that you can remember from your career from uh, up here playing uh, in Canada?
2: i I loved playing in Quebec. I never did great there.
1: Well, you made the um, doubles final there, did you not?
2: Did I? See, I don't, the doubles <laughs> is like whatever to me. Like, I'm always just like, oh, okay, the doubles, great. I want to say
1: 2005 in, in Quebec.
2: Yeah, I would be in the worst mood. And yeah, I remember Bethany being like, why are you in such a bad mood? You're in the finals of doubles. And I'm like, doubles, come on. I wanted to be a great singles player, you know, that was my thing. But, yes, I did have a great – actually, now I remember. I did have a great tournament there in doubles. Um, Singles – God, I lost lost to a Canadian girl there, actually. Um,
1: You played a bunch of Canadian women, actually, as I was looking through, scrolling through, (laughs) and I wasn't sure what to feel as I'm going through the wins you had, the losses, you know, who am I? But, um, I mean, obviously, playing a Canadian tournament, you probably get a few more wild cards and, and Canadian qualifiers in there.
2: Oh and then the girls from Canada they played so well in their own country. It was like you'd see these girls at a $50,000 challenger or $75,000 challenger and they're, you know, they went around or two and then suddenly you're playing in Quebec City and you're, you know, and the crowds behind them and they're like a whole new player. That's what I remember um about about Canada. Um, Did you
1: um sorry go ahead.
2: No, that's that's pretty much that's pretty much it. I remember I loved the food there. Um, I felt like Quebec City was so cozy because it was right before qu- Christmas and they all had their mm-hmm. Christmas lights up. So I always loved going there.
1: Yeah, it's a great spot. Did you um, did you catch, I'm assuming, but maybe not, the uh, match at the US Open last, uh, last summer between Serena and uh, our very own new Grand Slam champion, Bianca Andreescu?
2: Yes, I saw a little bit, bits and pieces of it. Um, you know we're we're Osaka fans over here, or at least my daughter is. So once Osaka was out, we kind of we didn't really um, we kept up with the men's, but not really the women's final. But yeah, I mean, um, I always feel like I'm going to say her name wrong. Can you say well, it one more time? It. No,
1: you go ahead and try it.
2: And- Andrescu, how do you say it?
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. Bianca Andrescu. Andrescu. You know what, I I gotta be honest with you, I'm terrible with names, and we talk about Bianca all the time on the podcast. I think I even flip-flop sometimes in terms of how I pronounce it, so don't feel bad. Well,
2: I'm from, like, I'm from Georgia, which is, like, the southern part of the United States of America, and we talk different there anyway, so when I'm saying, like, Skiavoni, like, I know I'm saying that wrong. I've known Skiavoni my whole life, but it's like, I know I'm saying it wrong, but that's just the way I say it.
1: I won't um, ask you to pronounce the other two Canadian last names, Dennis and Felix, because those would really be probably a mouthful.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Now, now, is Andreescu is she like originally a Canadian or did she yep. is she coming from yeah, she somewhere was else?
1: Born in Canada, uh, her parents were okay. from Romania. Uh, she went okay. back between the ages of like seven and nine, but uh, for the most part, she grew up uh, here in Canada. So she's homegrown talent for us.
2: Wow, that's awesome. Well, y'all did a great job with her because, boy, can she bust the ball. Seriously. Yeah.
1: And we've been waiting a long time to have a Grand Slam singles champion in tennis. So. I know
2: y'all have. Yeah, I know. Congratulations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. Well, look, Ashley, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, your hectic schedule with the kids and the dogs and uh, and everything <laughs> there at home. uh anyone who would like to follow you on instagram you're at ashley Harkel road there and uh, yeah really good job uh, Pronounced my
2: name correctly (laughs) yeah i almost (laughs) messed it up
1: there too but long day of talking to the kids so i'm amazed i even have a voice but thanks for stopping by we'd love to chat with you again in the future and and sharing some thanks for having me life on tour so uh you guys take care and stay safe and uh and we'll talk again down the road
0: There you have it, Mike's interview with uh, former American tennis player Ashley Harkle-Road. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how how early her career did end because we talked to some of these former players. And I, I think just in my brain, I'm thinking they're going to be kind of like in their mid-40s or something. And then she's like, you know, almost my age. She's only a couple, a few years older than me and uh, enjoying her life in and motherhood and, and has kids herself. But uh, yeah, she uh, really delved deep, I think, into her career. And I was quite fascinated to hear um, how important it was for her kind of managing ups and downs and, and the, a few of the regrets I guess she had in those areas and how she wants to instill kind of being even-keeled on the court as much as possible and in life.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to me when she spoke a little bit how she had, yeah, whether it was regrets or, or she kind of didn't feel like she made it, although I think many people would consider that kind of a career absolutely tremendous getting to those, those yeah. heights being a part of your, your nation's Fed Cup team, getting into the top 50 in, in the sport and, and making a life of it for, um, you know, seven, eight, nine years, whatever the case was there. Um, so I was almost a bit saddened to hear that, uh, that she felt that way because I, I don't know if she was giving herself enough credit. And certainly if she'd been able to continue onwards in her career, at the age of 25, I think there still would have been many more um, important moments for her. She did point out that um, it was tougher than she expected, becoming a mom and then trying to resurrect and resume her career, and how athletes like Kim Kleisters or Serena, who we've seen do it quite successfully, have bigger entourages and, and more financial resources, obviously, to help with that kind of burden. Um, I find it tough enough being tied to the house with my kids. I couldn't imagine traveling city to city with them or having to be apart from them for long stretches of time. So. Um, that definitely added a, an aspect of reality that uh, that players of her level and, and financial limitations at the time would have had to face for sure
0: yeah, I, I think she made that, that point well that it might not be the perfect perfect comparable when you 're talking about like a mega superstar as Serena Williams or Kim Kleisters who 's won multiple Grand Slam champions. Of course, they are able to set up that huge support system around them and, and make that return and travel and, and sort of make it work. And, and that's not the reality, obviously, for, for every tennis player. Of course, Serena and Kim also earn those successes as well. But uh, she also seems really at peace with uh, motherhood now. And uh, I, I think has the right approach with her kids in terms of if she wanted them to become professional athletes or tennis players, um, letting them kind of pave their own path.
1: Yeah, they've got a great uh, outlook on life. And just looking at her Instagram and her husband, Chuck Adams, who was also a professional tennis player, they both just seem so chill. And, uh, I mean, it helps when you've got a pretty sweet setup like they do at home, of course, too. But uh, it seems like they've got a good balance and and are putting undue pressure on their kids. And, uh, yeah, it was fun talking to her. There were some fun moments in that interview as well. Like, she couldn't remember her doubles final in Quebec City when we were talking about Canadian (laughs) memories, even though she has good memories from that city. Um, she forgot that she made the finals I checked it later and, and it was true that she made the the finals and doubles there and I mean she was pretty open talking about how singles was the focus and doubles for her was um, was secondary but I kind of appreciated that that honesty and uh, it was fun listening to her talk about uh, Bianca Andreescu's success and uh, she threw in a couple of y'alls in there which uh, <laughs> yeah I love some of those American accents that we that we get on the show and I wonder how we sound to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine we sound just as unusual, I suppose, if that's, uh, that's the right word. Um, I also like to reflecting on that uh, win over Sabine Lissicky, uh in Fed Cup that Lissicky was not the household name yet, but obviously, uh, you know, your eyebrows are raised when she takes out a Lindsay Davenport in front of you and you weren't initially going to be there for Fed Cup competition, but Serena Williams has dropped out. Now kind of all the pressure is on you. You didn't think the scenario would be created where Lindsay Davenport would suffer this loss. And now it's kind of all up to you. And, and she stepped up and uh, also used uh, some doubles tactics in that match, which she, she was talking about, which was uh, very interesting And, uh, you know, had had several big wins in her career. She mentioned as well, beating uh, Schiavone shortly after uh, she had won the 2010 French Open is is an enormous win.
1: Yeah, there were some more big wins there than I expected. Uh, I I mean, I didn't have a a, a super crisp memory of her um, career wins and losses. But definitely when I was going through, I was very impressed with some of those wins that she had there. And it's interesting to look back at the rankings then, too. I was kind of taking a peek at what they looked like in 2003 when she reached her career high and also 2010 when she retired. And the one thing that, oddly enough, you know, caught my attention was how Serena and Venus were ranked number one and number four, respectively, in the rankings, both in 2003 and in 2010. So we know that consistency that the Williams sisters had, and they're both still going, Serena inside the top ten, of course, and Venus it has been a little bit tougher the last year or so. But uh, still, that remarkable consistency that they've had for so long Uh, those two and then you look at all the other American female tennis players during that time and so many of them have changed and retired I mean back in 2003 you had the Davenport and Shonda Rubin was still in there and then it changes to 2010 and and 10 years later um, obviously some some fresh faces in there that that probably give American tennis fans a lot of hope but it is interesting to look back and see how things have changed and yet how the Williams sisters are that that constant that are still in there
0: Yeah, they're they're such a powerful duo that I I almost feel like when we start up a conversation about quality of American tennis and and you're focusing on the women's tennis, in a way it's like they're overlooked. It's like, oh, well, we we don't have that many great players. And like, you probably have the greatest player of all time. (laughs) And her sister, who's also a seven-time Grand Slam champion and and five-time winner of, of Wimbledon. I mean, these types of accolades are you know i it's going to take a long time until we see something remotely like this i think but uh when you do go through the rankings right now of american tennis I, I think there is a lot of hope in young players and and then we also see players who are kind of mid mid to late 20s and that that sort of sphere i, I look at a Sloan stevens and i think it, it's hard to find as much talent on a tennis court as Sloan right now in the wta rankings and obviously she's she's had downs i think over the past year and a half but uh her, Madison Keys, uh, and then Coco Goff, Amanda and Isimova coming up. I, I think there are a lot of great names for the future and present right now for American Tennis.
1: Yeah, they don't have the same mainstay presence in the top 30 as they had back in 2003. When I was looking then, there were 10 American women in the top 30, which is just remarkable. One on. out of every three, um, you know, that's that's really high. They had 16 players in the top 100. Fast forward to 2010 when when Ashley retired. Uh, there were only two Americans in the top thirty being Venus and Serena, uh, seven in the top hundred so there was a bit of a lull there and Now, if you look at the live rankings, the frozen rankings of course you 've got five Americans in the top thirty and sixteen in the top hundred so they 've got they 're back to having many more uh, entries in the top one hundred and they 've got more that are pushing into the top thirty and What I think is encouraging for them is the the young talent that is balancing the the veteran players i mean you 've got Serena and Venus who are 40 and nearly 40. Then you've got Madison Keys and Sloane Stephens who are in that mid-range. But then you've got uh, Grand Slam champion Sophia Kennan, who's quite young. And you've got the two teenagers who you mentioned, Coco Gauff and um, Amanda Nisimova, who are both uh, top 50, or at least Coco is, is close to the top 50 there. So yeah. those two players and Kennan, that trifecta right there, all three of them cause for great excitement. You think of how we feel here in Canada having Bianca um, you know, they've got three that I would be super excited about as well right now.
0: Yeah, and I think there are a lot of parallels uh, with the Sofia Cannon and Bianca Andreescu we've talked about. Those two, could that be like a budding rivalry? I think they played three times in 2019, Bianca winning two of them. So they've had some battles on court. And now we have Alele Annie Fernandez, who uh, is, is soaring up the rankings and I think was ready to crack the top 100 uh, before, of course, our season got paused, and uh, I'm not saying she's Coco Golf level yet, but uh, American Katie McNally, similar stage teenager, is just outside the top hundred. Um, I, I would love to see uh, an American versus Canadian sort of tennis rivalry growing on the women's side, which is something we've discussed in the past.
1: Mm-hmm, for sure, um, one one other thing I want to mention before we move on here is, uh, as I was looking at the top ten from 2010, from 10 years ago. Uh, On the WTA website, it still shows their current ages. Um, So uh, I was surprised by what I found, which is the top 10 from back then are all still under the age of 40, which is quite remarkable that even though many of them are are no longer playing, like Lina and uh, Schiavone, I believe, is retired now, Dementieva, players like that, they're all still under 40 years old. And you think of the men's tour and the top 10 there, and, and certainly the Grand Slam winners and the big three who are all over 30, and in some cases approaching 40 like Roger Federer. Uh, wh- what a difference. And you wonder how many of those female players could come back, like a Justine Henin or a Dementieva, and still be pretty competitive because they're, they're not, you know, over the hill yet really, really when you – and maybe it's just my perspective on it. But uh, I would say, you know, being in their 30s, still, um, still probably capable of hitting some good ball.
0: Yeah, you're making me think of uh, Caroline Wozniacki retiring at the front end of this year, and then posting workouts on Instagram, uh, and and fellow tennis players saying, "You're you're way fitter than me. Why did you retire?" Uh, we we think you could do so much more in the sport. Um, but at, at the same time, I, I do think players are playing for for longer periods of time, having longer careers. Um, and in the case of Ashley Harker Road, who not the case in that sense Uh, she mentioned she always did want to have a family and and did want to be a mother so I I think in that sense uh, she can be uh, proud of what she did accomplish on the tennis court even if she doesn't see it that way and proud of what her life is right now.
1: Yeah absolutely Um, I guess we should probably move along and and talk about the tournament that should be happening right now that uh, that may still happen later this season Um, although I I just can't imagine it happening when you look at the news and how things are going and how cases of COVID-19 are still rising in many places. But the the French Open does seem intent to still uh, happen from September 20th to October 4th, and and with fans as well, um, which is a pretty lofty expectation. But how much are you missing having the second Grand Slam of the year, um, you know, in front of us on TV right now?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm certainly missing it. I feel like French the French Open for maybe a lot of people, is one of the more underrated Grand Slams. But in terms of the time difference, I I love waking up in the morning and watching some of these great matches on on clay. Um, I I think for most who follow the men's side, you, you have that overwhelming familiarity of like, this is Rafael Nadal's house, and let's watch and see if someone could possibly dethrone him. And then on the women's side, we have overwhelming parody in terms of who might win a Grand Slam. Obviously players like Simona Hallett might stand out as exceptional clay court players, but uh, the parody, we, we always have trouble kind of penciling in our favorites, I think before the women's side of the Grand Slam gets going. Uh, so it, it really is one of my favorite Grand Slam events uh, of the year. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm missing it sorely.
1: It's funny. I don't know if it's because I, I hate playing on clay myself, uh, which is funny because I, <laughs> I did grow up playing on clay and hard court. Actually, I played more on clay courts. Than I played on, I mean, green clay or, or hard true, right? But right. I was comfortable on it as a kid. But now as an adult, whenever I step on it, I just I don't have my footing and I just don't feel as solid. Yeah. And I'm worried I'm going to, you know, pull a muscle or something like that. Um, but to me, when I watch the slams, it's my least favorite. doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. I mean, I get geared up for the slams like anybody. But uh, I always have that early season excitement for the Aussie Open. Wimbledon is where I fell in love with tennis, so that one's always special to me. And the U.S. Open is the only slam I've been to live, so I I love watching that one. And It's the final slam of the year, or at least during normal years it is. So the French is the one that's, yeah, not quite as exciting for me, but I always end up getting into it. It is funny not having it right now. Um, This is going to be a a long stretch between slams. And I just wonder the differences we're going to see with it being held, if it is held in the fall. Without a proper lead-up, I mean, the clay season usually seems like it lasts forever uh, with all the warm-up tournaments, lead-up tournaments that are going on where you see Dominic Team and, and Nadal obviously winning so many different ones. How is this going to impact the favorites without having that clay court lead-up that they're accustomed to?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm quite curious about this as well. Like, Would this uh, long layoff and not having a clay court season and just jumping into the French Open make uh, Rafael Nadal much more prone to being upset by someone who is just upstart kind of hitting hard and swinging freely and anything can happen. I think so. to be
1: his most yeah. vulnerable not feeling as you know like he has all that lead in and all that confidence and momentum. Of course. If yep. you're going to take him out uh, if you're another player this has got to be your best opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. No,
0: I agree. Uh, And I I suppose you could argue that in the sense of taking out another top player like a Djokovic or a Dominic team, obviously, who would be maybe second or third favorite at a French Open in any given season. This would be the time for for some of these other players to uh, be absolutely fearless on the court. They, they haven't you know watched the past month nadal win three masters titles on clay or djokovic on a 20 plus match winning streak um maybe that aura surrounding a, a couple of the big three players isn't in effect as much because they haven't played out a calendar season so um as you said though what is the likelihood of the tournament actually happening in late september i i feel like it's less than 50 50 to be honest
1: yeah i would i would say so as well and and having those fans, I mean, I understand from a financial standpoint, needing that money to come in, that revenue. But yeah. I, I just don't see how we're going to be anywhere close to being comfortable. I wouldn't go to a venue like that. As much as I love live tennis and can't wait to see Slam Tennis again, there's no way you'd find me in a spot like that. I mean, here in Toronto... No, not this weekend, year. People were freaking out about the number of people in some of the parks, like Trinity Bellwoods Park here in Toronto. And if I showed mm-hmm. up at a park like that with my family or even on my own and saw that many people... I'm turning around and I'm, I'm out of there, you know? So yeah. who's going to be comfortable putting themselves in a situation like that? And even if you step up here, you know, the hygiene and the cleaning and, and all that, that's a big, big ask um, to to put on a tournament and, and what liability are they taking on as well? If anything can be traced, imagine if there's some sort of huge outbreak amongst people that, that just attended Roland Garros. I mean, it just, I don't see how we're going to be there even though that's uh, you know, four or five months away still.
0: No, no. Uh, And I really, really don't think it is worth the risk at all. And uh, as you said, if, you know, if if I were in France at that time, of course uh, I wouldn't be in a pandemic type of season, but this would be the year I'd tell myself like, let's just wait, let's go in 2021. Let's check out this tournament in a couple of years. This year is not the year I would go and attend at all and and put my health at risk uh, whatsoever. We are going to, and we've seen a little bit of live tennis and uh, announced I know about Djokovic, actually, that we are going to get a swing of European exhibitions. They're going to go through Belgrade, Croatia, Montenegro, and and Djokovic, who I know has actually been training on a private court, um, he has brought along some top players to to join him in in playing some exhibitions. Uh, Dominic team will be playing, Zverev will be playing, Grigor Dimitrov competing, Damir Zumer, another name, Viktor Troitsky, a fellow Serbian. Uh, so for people, I guess, who need their fix of some live tennis, you can only maybe go through the YouTube highlights so much, uh, we are going to see it uh, sprinkled in, in, in June, which is nice.
1: Are those Are those matches, I didn't read into them too much, but are those matches being held without fans, I guess? Right. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I was watching some of the highlights from, from some of those um, little exhibitions that have been going on the last week or so. And I was watching one uh, where Hungarian Fanny Stolar and Martin Fucsiewicz were playing doubles. And I was shocked at the end as they were showing, you know, I was expecting like a virtual handshake or an elbow bump or something. But they all shook hands and high fived. And I even think there was a hug in there. And I was like, what am I what am I seeing here? Like, is this actually That's, happening? And maybe they just didn't think about it and, you know, the tennis match is over and they're so accustomed to going to the net and doing that. But I was kind of shocked at the, um, you know, disregard for just all the measures that we're taking these days. So as these tournaments begin to, uh, to take place, you hope that the players are being smart about it and not um, taking unnecessary liabilities that, that could result in, in this all, uh, you know, going back to, to square one.
0: Yeah, and I, I should take the time to point out that uh, Tennis Canada has all these sort of measures of, of court rules and, and etiquette to specifically follow during COVID-19 and, and in terms of social distancing. If you do have tennis balls, mark your balls, and, and you shouldn't be picking up tennis balls that belong to some, somebody else who might be playing on a court beside you. But you can, you can shouldn't kick their balls. Be...
1: <laughs>
0: you can kick them. Yes. I know, I know which clip you're thinking of now. Yeah. Um, and no doubles right now, singles only, which is, is a focus and, um, a couple other things, you know, you shouldn't be putting your hand on the net or on the court surface or, or anything like that. They're just like little simple things uh, to follow. Have you, have you been out yet? I've been out twice actually, which, uh, cool which i'm I'm grateful for, I was able to visit Kingston Ontario, which is uh covid free right now, and uh just just socially distanced seeing seeing my mom there and and we got a chance to play and I also played this week in Toronto at public courts, social distancing measures in in effect being very careful um, but uh it, it's definitely a different feel, and uh, i'm I'm hopeful to start coaching tennis again soon, but obviously we have to Uh, put these regulations in place to make it work.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping to get out there tonight. There's a couple of public courts near my house and I saw the lights on last night around 10 o'clock. So I'll wait till the kids are in bed and and head out and and hit a few. It's it's not going to be pretty, but uh, (laughs) it'll be nice to get out there and feel somewhat like you're doing something from your normal life again.
0: Yeah, certainly. And uh, also uh, this week, I, I did have a chance to speak with a, a physical therapist and doctor who is New York based. His name is Alex Axenov, and he's also a former division one college player and uh, just gave some insight in, into handling of COVID patients right now as a physical therapist and a couple of guidelines uh, for when you're getting back on a tennis court. So without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with physical therapist Alex Axenov. Now very happy to be joined by Alex Axenov, who is actually a physical therapist in New York City. And obviously that has been a hotbed for uh, the coronavirus in this time. And he's also a, a former tennis player at the Division One level. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining Matchpoint Canada.
3: Thank you so much for having me, man. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, no, we, we appreciate it. So uh, I'm curious, firstly, what's your role as a physical therapist in, in New York City right now? Like, what, what is your day-to-day like? And are you kind of immersed in in everything COVID-19 related at this moment?
3: Mm-hmm. So um, at this time, I'm part of the medical team. So, And I work in specifically the cardiac surgical care unit and the surgical in- intensive care unit. Uh, that I work with treating and caring for patients at this time. Day-to-day, I attend to patients in those units. I evaluate and treat them in order for them to be discharged. I also attend multidisciplinary rounds on on those units, which is where we meet together with all the healthcare disciplines and talk about the updates of each patient's status. So as my role as a physical therapist in the hospital setting, we we work on helping patients mobilize them, get them moving, ambulating them in, in order for them to recover and to leave the hospital safely.
0: And which uh, which, which hospital are you working at?
3: Um, so at this time, I'm working in the hospital in downtown Brooklyn.
0: Downtown Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, yeah. mm mm-hmm. And uh what's so so how how big like when did the surge of cases really begin and and how you know how much work are you getting in, in a day-to-day basis in term in terms of having to to mobilize patients
3: So initially when this pandemic started we didn't know the severity uh, around in the beginning of in around March the beginning of March we didn't know the severity and the impact it was going to have and we had to learn quickly I was actually one of the first healthcare workers who was exposed to a confirmed COVID-19 patient. So I was told to self-quarantine myself for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And And that was so that was a
0: a 14 day period, I guess, of self-quarantine. And then you, you couldn't work during that time, I gather.
3: Yes. So it was initially supposed to be for 14 days, but it was later reduced to a week. Because of the changes in the policy procedures, because we had um, certain staff members that unfortunately um, had gotten sick and were not present. So we needed uh, people on the front lines to come back to help and take care of those patients in the hospital setting.
0: Okay. And uh, so how much, I guess, exposure would you have to the virus right now? Like how many patients are are you seeing maybe on a day-to-day basis, if you could estimate? Mm
3: -hmm. So at this time, uh, I would like to say that 80 to 85% of my caseload is with COVID-19 patient population. Mm -hmm. Um, At this time, it all depends on what stage they're in, in terms of the where they are. So, at in, in, the, in, the, in the acute stage, we're working primarily on mobilizing them, moving them in order for them to prevent the use of a ventilator. If the patients do end up getting on the ventilator, we provide treatments such as breathing techniques, positioning, and chest physical therapy to help increase their breathing capacity and to help them wean off the ventilators. And once they become more medically stable, we work on ambulation and functional activities, while constantly monitor, monitoring their vitals and oxygen levels as they prepare to be discharged.
0: And uh, I, I know it's uh, we we kind of hear about it uh, up north in, in Canada of of issues of shortage of ventilators. Has that been the case? Or do, do you have enough ventilators where where you're working at, at your hospital in Brooklyn?
3: So. Uh, initially, we were having a shortage of ventilators and equipment, such as personal protective equipment. But as the weeks have gotten and patients have started to improve and recover, um, there has been sufficient um, equipment and ventilators to help assist them in, in terms of getting them back to recovering.
0: Okay. And uh, so, like, I'm trying to sort of treat treat the virus now with, I guess, cautious optimism because we're seeing, I a, guess, a somewhat of a flattening of a curve, I, I think, in Canada right now. And I'd like to believe that you're slightly seeing the same thing currently play out in New York City to some degree. And for for us listeners who are, are tennis fans and tennis players eager to get back on the court, I guess we're wondering when that time could be. Tennis seems to be a sport that has m- obviously much more social distancing than, than others. Do, do you, do you foresee tennis like something feasible for uh, metropolitan cities or would it have to be, I guess, I guess more, you know, rural cities that, that could make this happen? I'll come back.
3: I think as they're implementing right now, in terms of recovering, re- re- opening up everything with um, phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three, I believe that will be the same thing in terms of, having phases where entertainment and sporting events will be returned back to where they used to be beforehand. Right.
0: And uh, for for you, are, are you still an active tennis player? Like, were you playing tennis prior to this happening?
3: So before all of this, I do play recreationally, and I teach sometimes to give back to the community and to help those who are coming up. I believe that tennis is one of the few sports you can play your entire life. It's truly a game for a lifetime. Um, But since um, this pandemic started, um, we've had um, the courts on our courts. The nets have been taken off and the courts have all been closed, of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, I believe that once things start to improve and they start to um, slowly progress in the phases, then... The the recreational and athletic facilities will start to slowly also open up to the public.
0: Yeah, that's certainly the the hope here as well. And you played college tennis as well, right? Where you played uh, Division One. Which which college did you play for?
3: Yeah, so I played at the University of Maryland College Park. Back when it was in the ACC conference, and now it's in the Big Ten. So, um, but yes, I played at the University of Maryland.
0: Nice, nice. Very good, very good. And uh, so as a physical therapist, I guess prior to uh, the the outbreak of of COVID-19, were you working predominantly with athletes?
3: So I primarily uh, worked in the hospital setting in the same unit, in the cardiac intensive care unit, where I primarily dealt with patients who had um, complications from cardiovascular issues, such as shortness of breath and Mm -hmm. and, um, falls. And um, also in the intensive care unit as well, where patients who are in very critical and difficult shape who are are there. Um, But outside of the hospital, I am the owner of a stay active physical therapy where we provide individualized and comprehensive treatment plans to help relieve those of their pains, such as recreational tennis players. To help them get back to their normal activities without using injections, medications, and imaging.
0: I I think for a lot of us right now, and uh, we're we're doing our best, like within quarantine, to stay physically active, and and I think heart health is something that's so crucial. Would you have any tips, I I guess, for for people who are stuck at home uh, in terms of how they can stay healthy, maybe how they can boost their immune system?
3: Yes. So at this time, the best thing people can do is, of course, Um, perform proper hygiene, such as washing your hands, not touching your face. Secondly, I think it's a great time for people to take care of their own bodies and practice self-care activities. We unfortunately have seen that patients with underlying medical conditions have a much tougher time. So people should control their diet and sleep on a regular basis to minimize risks to themselves and others around them. Also, they should make movement a priority. Performing activities such as walking, cycling, stair climbing. I know the Peloton is a very popular piece of equipment now. Mm-hmm. Um, they can people can get creative with equipment such as body weights, cans, jugs, as long as they don't break nothing that they break. And they can attempt to make workouts challenging um, from changing resistance, repetitions, rest breaks. And also, I think that performing mindful activities such as deep breathing, meditation. Listening to music is also beneficial. And lastly, we should all focus on the positive parts of our lives and main, con- maintain connection with loved ones.
0: Yeah, uh, so, so crucial. I, I guess last question before I, I, I let you go, uh, because it, it's got to be a stressful time for you uh, working, working alongside these patients in, in a, a chaotic hospital day-to-day. How are you, I guess, managing your stress levels and, and how are you sort of make, making sure you're coming out of this healthy and okay?
3: So initially, I was quite worried, and it was a difficult period of time. You go through a lot of different emotions with so many unknowns with this virus. But um, during my quarantine, self quarantine, I took care of myself. I continued performing proper hygiene, controlled my diet, sleep, and made movement a priority. Thankfully, I didn't experience any symptoms or complications. And once I was medically returned to to return to work, I've been optimistic, and we're all optimistic at work. We're all working together on the front lines. Um, everyone on the front lines team, from the doctors to the nurses to the um, housekeeping to, um, to maintenance staff, they've all come together. We've been working very hard to ensure the safety of each patient, and thankfully, more patients have been recovering. And now every time a patient gets discharged, the hospital plays the Bob Marley song, everything's going to be all right. (laughs) Yeah, we're very optimistic and looking forward to putting this all behind us and getting back to regular lives and hopefully enjoying things such as going out and playing tennis. You truly um, take it for granted for what you have. And we all want to be able to go back to where we were and continue living life
0: yeah yeah certainly and uh no that that's great uh, three little birds by bob marley one of the one of the most uplifting songs uh that's great uh, to play to patients who are being discharged alex thanks uh so much uh for for joining us on matchpoint canada and uh, telling us uh, a bit about your role in a downtown brooklyn hospital uh and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing on the front lines helping us all out thank you so much there you have it. Just a, a few sort of measures to, to follow in place. If you are getting back on the tennis court playing tennis, uh, be safe out there. Uh, socially distance. Uh, your health matters. I, I know we want um, the feel of, of getting back hitting tennis balls and, and it is healthy and, and great for us, but uh, we have to do it safely.
1: That's right. Everybody take care of yourselves and uh, looking forward to, to watching some live tennis as it does get back out there again um, and cautiously you know, hopeful and optimistic that things are gonna start taking their course and people are gonna be smart about the decisions they make out there. And hopefully we can get back in studio together at some point there, Ben, and, uh, and, and get that going. But in the meantime, we are trying some new things. And uh, speaking of which, our, our YouTube channel, which uh, we've just launched.
0: Yes, yes, we did uh, launch a YouTube channel last week and uh, we're going to get to to work on on some specific content for it, I hope. But uh, if you did miss our interviewer podcast from last week, uh, Mike, you had a great conversation with Craig Shapiro and uh, that conversation and video is living right now on YouTube, uh, our channel Match One Canada. You can can subscribe there and we've uh, also told you where to find us on Twitter as well and we're on Instagram as well. So please check it out.
1: Looking forward to hearing from all of you. Drop your comments, retweets, and likes, uh, and feedback is always appreciated. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week.